Amen. That song prays that the Lord would reform our hearts. And the way He does that is through His Word, and particularly through the preaching of His Word in a local church context. And that's why we spend about half of our worship service just looking at a passage of Scripture together and applying it to our lives and thinking about the glory of God in this passage. So please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 11. We've been preaching through Luke for about nine months or so total at this point. Um, kind of broken up over time and in one sense anyway. We did a couple chapters in December of 2020, I believe it was, and then uh, picked back up in chapter 3 in September of 2021. So we've worked our way up to chapter 11 now, and we're going to study just the first 13 verses of chapter 11, which is a passage on prayer. And I have been uh, pastoring this church for a little bit over two years now, and as far as I recall, haven't had any passages that explicitly talked about prayer at length. I think maybe one in Philippians early on in our time here. Uh, obviously talks about prayer a little bit, but in terms of the point of the passage being about prayer, this is the first time in two years that I've preached about this, and I would say to that, this is the glory of expositional preaching. You let the Word of God stand on its own two feet, and you say what the Bible says, and you make the emphasis that the Bible says, and say it the way the Bible says it, and you trust God that He laid out the passage the way He did, and put one thing after the other, and led us to preach one particular book after another, and so forth. So uh, then we faithfully explain that text and leave it in the Lord's hands to... Um, to work that, that seed into our hearts, and we continue to water it over time. But the passage today is about prayer, and so we won't uh, get sidetracked by other little details of the text, just like we haven't been sidetracked by other, uh, other little details in other passages. Uh, we'll, we won't talk about parenting, we won't talk about um, you know, some of these other minor details in the text. We'll talk about what the passage is about, and that's what we do week after week. And so I am preaching this sermon to persuade you to pray with delight. You might say, well, what other way to pray is there? And I think there are lots of other ways to pray. You could pray with fear that God won't answer your prayers the way you want Him to. You could pray with shame over your deep sinfulness and the the guilt that you feel from some particular sin, perhaps, that you have struggled with recently. Or with, you could pray with embarrassment over not knowing exactly what to say or how to say it. You might think, well, I'm not as eloquent in praying as these other people in my Bible study group or something like that. Uh, perhaps you would pray with the guilt that you haven't prayed as you should. Well, I feel guilty I haven't prayed, so I'm not going to pray. Oh, okay, maybe there's a better way to think about this. But I think we can acknowledge that that's a temptation for us. Or maybe we could pray with resentment that other people seem to have a better life without even asking God to give them a better life. They have no connection to God and they still have a happier life than I do and I'm asking God to give me a better life. And so you resent when you pray. But I would ask you to please set aside your guilt, your resentment, your shame, your embarrassment and pray. Jesus loves you. He loves to hear you come to His Father, God the Father, with your burdens. And He loves you enough to pray for you Himself. The Holy Spirit loves you, and He prays for you, and the Father loves you, and He wants to hear your prayer of humble dependence. When you ask Him for something, it's a way of glorifying Him. Just like when, you know, I mean, this is a super minor example, but 
I kind of like being tall. And at a store recently, a lady was pointing up at the top shelf and said, uh, you look tall, could you get that for me? All right, I will get that for you. Well, that kind of makes me feel good about myself, like I can do something to help someone. You know what, it glorifies God when you ask him to do things for you that you can't do for yourself. That's, that's the only point of that little snippet story there, is God is glorified when we ask him for things, when we talk to him about our sins and about our requests and our burdens. So, Talk to God with the light. That's the burden, that's the impetus behind this sermon. And now please follow along as I read Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for another friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Throughout this book of Luke, we've identified that typically one, or each passage is emphasizing one or the other priority. It's either answering the question, who is, and you can fill in the blank, who is? Thank you. Come on, guys. I've said this like so many times. Okay, so who is Jesus? That's one question. The other question is, what does it look like to follow him? Good. We're kind of catching on here. So what, who is Jesus? Most passages early on in this book were, who is Jesus? And in the last couple chapters, most passages have been, what's it look like to follow him? And what we saw was that uh, to follow Jesus means you take up your cross and follow him. Like, it's going to be difficult. That was the end of chapter 9. In chapter 10, we saw things like to follow Jesus means you uh, love your neighbor. Okay, the the parable of the Good Samaritan. To follow Jesus means you sit at his feet. You take in his word, in other words. And we're going to continue on that theme. You're just kind of seeing that, well, there's both an external, like you're loving other people, and there's an internal. You're taking in, you're letting God feed you. And another characteristic of those who follow Jesus is followers of Jesus pray. That's just a simple statement that this passage is arguing for us. And so is this passage primarily about Jesus or primarily about following him? I would say it's primarily about following him, but it obviously teaches us some about Christ himself as well. 
Some of you perhaps have heard of the Forbidden City in China. I'll just read a little bit about it here. Uh, it's in a city of, of Beijing, and it's a vast complex of almost 800 wooden buildings that served for over five centuries as the imperial palace for the ruling emperors of the Ming and Qing dynasties. Have any of you been to the Forbidden City? Okay. I have not either. But it was built by 100,000 skilled craftsmen and over a million laborers. Its sole purpose was to provide a secluded place where the emperor of China would be free from interacting with people like you and me, the common people of his day. It was called the Forbidden City because only by the permission of the emperor could anyone enter or leave. Within the vast complex, there's a series of walls, courtyards, and gates barring access to the emperor. The Gate of Supreme Harmony is the final gate before the imperial throne, and no commoner was able to get that far. The imperial court consisted of 100,000 selected people who served as the emperor's officials, but even they rarely got to glimpse the emperor. Whenever the emperor wanted to review his imperial court, he would summon them to the courtyard called the Hall of Supreme Harmony. An official would call out the emperor's arrival, and all the court officials would fall to their knees and kowtow, which means you touch your forehead on the ground, and you do that nine times, bowing before this emperor. And this was a symbol of their complete obedience to him, the emperor of China. This is recounted in a book by uh, Andy Davis, a pastor in North Carolina, who will be here this fall. But I tell you that because I think, I tell you about that city because I think sometimes when we pray, we feel like we're entering into uh, a place where we're not worthy to go. And that makes sense until you remember what your relationship with God actually is like and the reason you have access to God in the first place. We get to pray because Jesus himself went before us, the book of Hebrews tells us, into that most holy place, that gate of supreme harmony, so to speak. And he tore it apart so that we can enter into that gate as well. He tore the curtain at the cross, and now we have uh, access to God. And so rather than us standing outside from a distance and never getting a glimpse of God, the great king, the true emperor, Now we have full-time access to him, and he's not annoyed when we come to him. He's actually joyful every time we come to him, right? Maybe you've woken people up uh, in the middle of the night, like maybe my children, for instance, to ask a question, and you, you know, get a little bit of a disgruntled, just like, oh, sure, whatever, like, just get what you need and be done. And God is never annoyed when you wake him up because he's never sleeping. He's never slumbering. And so this passage is countering that mindset that I shouldn't pray or can't pray or don't know how to pray because God might not want to hear me, might not want to hear my uneloquent speech. No, he wants to hear you. And so this passage simply calls you that as a follower of Jesus, give yourself to prayer. Give yourself to prayer as a follower of Jesus. Luke talks about prayer a lot, about 20 times in Luke. Most of those times, the other gospel writers aren't talking about it in those passages. Like at the transfiguration, Jesus is praying before the transfiguration happens. Uh, A variety of, of major events in the book of Luke are all started with Jesus praying. And then other people praying in various circumstances. And so, uh, 
Luke is emphasizing this just in Luke, but then he also wrote Acts, the sequel to this book, and he goes on and talks about prayer another 20 times there. He talks about prayer a lot, which means it's really important, and so we need to give it a lot of attention. And so as we have opened this passage up, if you've been a Christian for a while, you probably thought to yourself, well, this sounds a lot like Matthew 6, which would be a wonderful connection, a wonderful instinct for you to think of. And maybe you could say, so what is the connection between this passage, Luke 11, and Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gave very similar praying instructions to his followers? And we don't know the direct connection, but it does seem like this is a separate occasion. Like this is a different time that Jesus was giving the same instruction as he gave his disciples earlier. Similar to when I've, I've preached uh, one passage in Scripture in probably, well, at least two different countries and probably about ten different states, I'm going to guess. All right? Just a variety of preaching opportunities I've had. You kind of have that go-to sermon. And that one time I preached it in Peru, uh, I showed up at like one in the morning at the airport. And as the guy's driving me to the, the house I was going to stay in, he goes, by the way, you're going to preach tomorrow morning. I was like, sweet. And what time is that? Ten. Sweet. So nine hours from now, I'm preaching, and I hadn't known that. I guess this is just how you communicate in Peru. The time is kind of indifferent. And so um, at that moment, what passage do I think I was going to preach? I knew exactly which one it was going to be. And did I preach it exactly in Peru the way I did in Virginia or you know, Alabama or all these other places? No. I probably... Told, I know I told different stories that time that I preached it. I know I made different emphases that time I preached it. And so we expect that Jesus would do the same thing. If he says, this is how you should pray, this is the model of what kinds of burdens you should pray about, we kind of expect him to do that in a variety of places. So I think what we have here is an instance, this is my opinion, an instance of Jesus' disciples saying, huh, John and his followers have their own special way of praying. We need to get like, get Jesus to give us his special, like, secret formula of how to pray. Whether it's so that they can just sound better or so they can get what they pray for more quickly or whatever the reason might be, they want to have their special way to pray. So almost like, hey, Jesus, now that we're, you know, your close followers, give us your, your secret prayer lessons. And Jesus is like, you want to know how to pray? Let me tell you what I told you before. And he just went back to the basics again. There was no secret sauce to their prayer recipe. This is just, you go back to the basics that you've already heard. And that's sometimes what we need to hear as well, is not anything new. We don't need new information. We just need to be reminded of what we've already heard before. And I think that's what's happening here. So Jesus is praying as he has been in multiple other passages in Luke already. And when he finished, one of his disciples says, Lord, teach us to pray. And how does Jesus respond to that? He does so by telling them, first of all, what to pray. That's verses 1 through 4. And then how to pray. Some different ways to pray with different kinds of attitudes, basically. How to pray in verses 5 through 13. So let's look at what to pray in verses 1 through 4. And in verse 2, we see specifically that we should pray for God's glory. And that's what we mean simply when we read, Father, hallowed be your name. That word hallowed basically means set apart or distinct or may your reputation spread. May you cause your name to receive all the praise. So instead of us doing things so that we get the benefit, so that people think highly of us, like we said last week when we prayed together by singing, Be Thou My Vision, 
Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. We don't need that for ourselves. We want God to get all the praise, not empty praise for us. And so when we think of hallowing God's name or making it stand out or making, it, uh, making people recognize the greatness of God through our prayers, we, we essentially are reminding ourselves that we should not uh, take the name of the Lord in vain. That's another way of saying this, that we're trying to give God the honor that He is due, the reputation that He deserves, and we want to see that spread more and more. And this isn't telling us we need to be the ones who hallow God's name, though that's an implication that we can explore another time. But it's that it is simply expressing we want God to get so much glory that that's where everybody's attention goes. And of course, again, one of the implications of that is that we, we live our lives that way, that we aren't trying to draw attention to ourselves, but to the Lord and His grace. So we pray for God's glory, and as part of that, we, we pray for His name to be hallowed and for His kingdom to come. And this is uh, one of those theological concepts, the, the kingdom of God, that can be very difficult to understand because the Old Testament itself doesn't use this term but it's on every page of the Old Testament, okay? The New Testament does use this term a lot, and sometimes it sounds as if God's kingdom has already come. So why would we pray for it to come? And the way we need to think about this is a term that we've talked about multiple times here, and that is the idea of the already and the not yet. God's kingdom has already been inaugurated, has already started, okay? Just to use that, that perhaps simpler word for us. But it is not completed yet. When will we know that God's kingdom has come, that it is fully complete, that the not yet part is gone? When will we know that? When there's no more sin, when there's no more sorrow, when there's no more crying and no more pain. In other words, when we're in the new heavens and the new earth, that's when we'll know that God's kingdom has come. So essentially, when we're praying, your kingdom come, we're essentially praying, Lord, come quickly, which is the last prayer of the Bible. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, in Revelation 22. When we think about God's kingdom, we want to make sure we remember that the the Bible never commands us to build God's kingdom. That's not our job. It is our job to proclaim God's kingdom, and then God causes His kingdom to expand and to flourish. But essentially, our job is not to do kingdom work except for in the way of Proclaiming the gospel and making mature disciples of Jesus Christ, both here and around the world. And so our our job is not to build God's kingdom, but to proclaim his kingdom and to pray that Jesus would soon return. And in so doing, God's kingdom would come. So when we think of what to pray, we pray for God's glory. He does that by honoring his name and by his kingdom coming to completion. Secondly, we pray for physical provision. This is in verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. There are a few uh, notes we can observe here in verse 3. For one, it's the, the, the pronouns are plural. So this is not a selfish prayer request. We're praying this for each other, for us as a church, for us as a community. Give us our daily bread. And it's in the present tense, so it's continually be doing this. Keep giving us, be giving us each day our daily bread. So an acknowledgement that we aren't created to have security all in one lump sum. God kind of created us in such a way that we should be 
going back to the well of God's kindness to us every single day and asking, Lord, give us everything we need for today. And this reminds us very similarly of um, manna in the wilderness. How often did they go out to get manna every single day to get their daily bread? And the Lord encourages us to trust Him one day at a time. And what that means in the language of another passage is there is enough trouble for tomorrow, tomorrow. Deal with today, today, and ask God to provide for you today all that you need. So the daily bread here is really just a, an, an example phrase of saying, Lord, give me everything I need today so that I have the strength to serve you, so I have the strength to obey you and to proclaim your, king, your kingdom's glory. So it's a prayer for physical provision. In verse 4, we also are to pray for reconciliation, that the Lord would forgive us our sins. Why would you have to pray that? In theory, it looks like every single day. Because you sin every single day. And maybe you kind of wonder, like, I thought God forgave me when I got saved, when I was converted, when I was justified. You can use different terms here. So why would I pray for forgiveness if I already know that God forgave me a long time ago, maybe years and years and years ago? Well, this is a reminder that our relationship with God is just that. It is a relationship. And if you want to say that you're still married, but you never talk to your spouse and you never acknowledge that you're a selfish jerk, which we can all acknowledge, okay, whether you realize it or not, there it is. You're a selfish jerk, so you should acknowledge that to your spouse. And if you're going to say, we're not going to talk about that, can we really call that a relationship? Maybe on a piece of paper, you're still married, but that marriage is in shambles if you can't acknowledge, I have sinned against you again today. And so we do the same thing with the Lord. It is a relationship with God. And so we acknowledge our sinfulness again and again and ask Him for fresh grace for today and fresh forgiveness for today. And that doesn't diminish the, the, the free gift of salvation that God has given us. This is a part of us continuing to grow in that, in that relationship with Him. But we also acknowledge that sinners sin against you. And that one of the reasons we can ask God to forgive us is because we have already forgiven those who have sinned against us. Which means that if you have a, a really hard time forgiving other people who sin against you, this passage is partially designed to make you ask, have I really been forgiven by God if I'm not willing to forgive other people? Someone has said that Christians should be the most forgiving people in the world because they are the most forgiven people in the world. Do you recognize that? Can you say, my sin is so much worse than any sin that anyone else has ever done against me? And maybe somebody has done some really bad sin against you but your sin is still worse against God. So, ask God for reconciliation. And perhaps there's someone here today who would say, well, I've never acknowledged that I've done anything wrong and I don't want anybody telling me I've done anything wrong. The Bible is written to people who are willing to acknowledge I have sinned against a holy God. And it's on the basis of that acknowledgement that then the gospel call is for you. That when you can say, I'm really bad, but God is really kind. Like John Newton on his deathbed saying, 
I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. That's a beautiful statement, and we need to remind ourselves of that every single day and take more looks at Christ than we do at ourselves and at His, at His richness. But if you have not, never acknowledged your sinfulness before God, this is a great day to do that. Now is the time of salvation, the Bible says. You don't know that you have the rest of today. You don't know that you have the rest of your life. So turn in faith to Christ. And He is the one who lived the perfect life you never could. He's the one who's perfect and has not done wrong against anybody else. You have done those wrongs. And somebody has to pay for them. You can pay for it if you want to. But I will tell you, when you come to that last day, you will say, oh, I did not want to pay for this myself. You could pay for it, or Christ has already paid for it. And when you put your faith in Him, His righteousness becomes your righteousness, and your sinfulness goes to Him, which He then took on the cross for you. So if you would like to talk about that, we would love to do that over a meal this afternoon or through text message or any other way you'd like to do that. We would love to talk to you about your relationship with Christ and your need to be reconciled to Christ. So pray for spiritual reconciliation, and, and then in the last part of verse 4, pray for spiritual protection. Lead us not into temptation. When we were at Yellowstone this past summer, one of our, the trails that we walked, we, we really wanted to get off path, and this is its own sermon, just the story is just its own sermon, but one snippet of that, of that trail was uh, that it was very, very steep and like when you stepped on it, the earth would give way a little bit. Like you, had, you really were going to have to be kind of nimble about it, jack be nimble, jack be quick, in order to get past this very narrow part of a trail, lest you fall really far down. And so obviously at that point, I'm holding two of my son's hands, and Clarissa is holding the other one, and we're just kind of inching along side by side um, to try and get through this very narrow section here. Tons of fun. Highly recommended with young children when it's very hot. But what I'm saying is when we pray, Lord, deliver, or lead us not into temptation, it's acknowledging we are in danger. And it's way worse danger than a narrow path. It's spiritual danger. And the dangers are all around us. They're in us. We have enough sin in us. We don't need the devil's temptations. We have terrible temptations in our own hearts. So we have the world, the flesh, and the devil all working together against us. And that's why we need to pray this prayer. Lord, protect us spiritually. The Lord Himself never actually leads us into temptation. James counters that idea for us. But He does protect us. And He encourages us to ask Him for that spiritual protection. So what should you pray for? You should pray for God's glory, for physical provision, for reconciliation, and for spiritual protection. Now, how should you pray? Verses 5 through 8 tell us that you should pray with boldness. And Jesus tells kind of a funny story of, of these, these friends who know each other before this moment. And particularly one of these friends has another outside friend come and stay at his house. And maybe he gets there after dark. And so all of the food that they made that morning, their daily bread. And in this culture, typically you just make your bread for the morning. You would eat it throughout the day. Get up the next morning and do it again. And so all their bread was gone. We've got this guy who's shown up out of nowhere, and he's hungry, and he needs some help. And Jesus tells this story to say, well, 
when you show up at somebody's friend, uh, when somebody shows up at your house, a friend shows up at your house, you may not give him the bread because he's your friend. You may just give it to him because he's being persistent, because he's being bold. We see this word here in verse uh, 8, impudence. Impudence. Have you used that word recently? I don't even know what another version of that word would be. I, I have been impudencing. Like, I don't know how you would use this word other than the way it's written here. Because of his impudence, he will rise and give him what he needs. That means his boldness, his shamelessness. Like, he's going to keep knocking on your door. You're not getting back to sleep until you give this guy some bread. That's what it means. At that point, throw out the friendship. You're only giving him the bread because he's asking over and over again. But what he says is, God responds to these faithful prayers. God actually likes it when we come back to him again and again, when we pray with boldness. Because God himself is better than any earthly friend. If you know an earthly friend is going to give you bread in that circumstance, you know the Lord will as well. So verses 5 through 8, pray with boldness. Keep going back to the well and asking God for big prayer requests. You don't need to just ask Him for the tiny ones. You can do that too. But you can ask Him for the salvation of your lost loved ones. You can ask Him for the things that you probably consider that maybe He's never going to answer. And maybe He never will, which again draws us to some of the other ideas uh, later on in this passage. But even if He won't, He's still glorified by what you ask and by your bold asking again and again. How should we pray with boldness? Secondly, pray with assurance, verses 9 through 13, because God himself gives you the best gift, as we'll see in, at the end of the passage. Pray to God with assurance. And here you just have this beautiful, well-known passage of, of the Lord encouraging you to keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. And where he used the example of a friend in verses 5 through 8, now he's going to use the example of a father, an earthly father, and again, one that many of us can actually understand and appreciate what this is saying. What father is going to give his son who asks him for fish something that's actually going to be bad for him, right? So if you have, your, your child says, Daddy, I'm thirsty, you're either going to give him water or if it's like a super hot day and he's dehydrated, maybe some Gatorade or something. You're not going to give him Clorox or, you know, some kind of other poison. You're not going to do something that's bad for your child. And any earthly father, by and large, is going to give a thirsty child a cup of water. And again, it actually honors the father who knows I'm in a position of responsibility to help this person. And I love to help my children. And this is how most sane parents, and I mean that in a true sense, help their children. So he uses these two examples of fish and an egg. These are the good things. No, no earthly father is going to give bad things like scorpions or serpents, which are actually going to hurt their children. You're not going to give them poison when they ask for a treat. And that's us as sinners, if you are evil, Jesus says, and you know how to give good gifts, what he's saying is God is so much better than any earthly friend and God is so much better than any earthly father. 
He loves you so much. He wants to give you the good gifts that you need. But when you come to the end of verse 13, you might be thinking like, when did I pray for the Holy Spirit? What does it even mean to pray for the Holy Spirit? How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And what we need to do is kind of pause and locate ourselves in where we are in the Bible, where we are in salvation history. At this point, a passage in Joel chapter 2 has not had any kind of fulfillment yet. Let me read just one, for sake of time, just one phrase of Joel 2 verse 28, and you can look at verses 28 through uh, 32 on your own. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. This was an expectation that at some point in human history, God was going to pour out His Holy Spirit on people. This tells us that it was probably expected and understood that God's people prayed for that to happen. Faithful followers of God in Israel would say, Lord, send Your Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, that Father will definitely answer that prayer. And He did not long after this happened. When Jesus died and rose again, and then you come a couple weeks later to Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit descends. And that passage is fulfilled, at least in part. And we have the beneficiaries, we are the beneficiaries of that today, by having the Holy Spirit in our own hearts. So, What this is saying is God's people ask big prayer requests and God loves to answer them. And He did. Maybe people have been praying for hundreds of years. Lord, send Your Spirit. Of course God's going to answer that prayer. It's a God-centered prayer request. And so perhaps you're asking, well, I've been knocking, seeking, and asking and God hasn't answered my prayer. Well, let's remember We aren't God. We don't know what God's will is. That's one of the reasons we pray. Lord, Your will be done. And I want this to happen in my life. So please, answer this prayer. And maybe He'll do that. But if not, remember, you're not God, so you don't know what is best for you. But He does. And He's going to give you what is best for you. And so that's how we can pray. Because the Father is kinder than any earthly father. And that's true whether it's a, a good example or a bad example of a father. Last Saturday I was at a park with my boys and they were having fun with a boy who is probably right perfectly situated between Thomas and Grant and it's kind of hard to find somebody who can play well with both of those ages at this point. You know, one's 11, the other's 8, so you can swing in an older direction like almost teenagers, and you can also swing in a younger direction like just started kindergarten kind of thing, and Grant can play quite well with that, but this boy was right between two of our boys, it seemed like, as far as height and maturity and everything, and they're having a great time. But the dad had said to um, this other child, we're going to leave soon. Well, then the boy came over and said, Dad, could I please stay for 30 more minutes? And he said, you're not going to eat dinner if we stay. And he goes, that's fine, I don't want dinner. He goes, then you're going to bed right away. I was like, come on! <laughs> like, what a jerk! He just wants to play. And you're saying, if you play, you're going to go to bed right away? Like, this is... Okay, so this is where this sermon's about parenting all of a sudden. Footnote, that's terrible parenting, okay? If the reason you can't stay is a good reason, give them that reason. But if you're just crotchety, acknowledge that and say, sure, 
go play. I'm going to go walk around for a minute to get my crotchety out of my heart, and I'll come back and serve you. That was a terrible earthly father. But there are also wonderful earthly fathers who would have said, absolutely, son. And when the ice cream truck comes, I'll get you some ice cream too. I'm so glad you're having such a good time with these friends. I'm not saying you always need to do those things to love your children. What I'm saying is, even good earthly fathers know how to love their children. How much more does the true father love you and want to hear from you? And you're not sequestered off to some other part of his forbidden city. You get to go straight through the gates, right to his throne, and give him your requests. Pray, Christian, with delight. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are so overwhelmed that you would want to hear us, and we pray that you would make us a praying church, a place where we pray for your glory, for your kingdom to come, also a place where we know that you love to hear about our needs and our burdens. Each of us are bearing those today, so may we be people who lay our burdens at your feet and find rest from you who are gentle and lowly in heart. In Christ's name, amen.